You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, it's our 100th episode special, the second recording. We open with a discussion of the show and our plans for the future. Our main topic is on difficult decisions. We offer a crash course on how to stop dreading difficult decisions and how to best equip yourself to make them. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vero the Science Collie. So this is our second recording of our 100th episode. <laughs> yes, this is episode 100, Mark 2. Uh, um. So you might hear me get a little distracted because um, our so behind behind the scenes we recorded the hundredth episode we did a really um, I mean we we did, we did a good job and it's like a, I went it's to, a solid two hour show too it was great and I went to edit it and now um, our recording software bungled it beyond belief so uh, in the time since we had to delay I. I I couldn't, I couldn't salvage it. It was, it was irredeemable. I I can't begin to tell you just how awful it was. It would have, by the time that I, we record this re-recording and edit this, I would still be editing that shit show that happened. But in the meantime, our audio recording service has updated and it's actually really distracting now because it has this (laughs) scrolling waveform of audio as it goes by. And I keep getting distracted by it. So if I sound weird, it's where I'm just like, ooh. I like how they just keep throwing in these random features. Like, we'll try this shit now. <laughs> so, yeah. So now we can only use a specific version of a specific browser. And the moon has to be in waxing, like, gibbous. <laughs> it's, it's, we had to perform like a ritualistic sacrifice in order to get everything working. But the good news is that we're fingers crossed. This works as expected, uh, but we're going to get into the main topic of uh, our introduction topic, rather of our show. This is our hundredth episode. Um, technically it's our hundred and second. I'm tempted to say, because we've had some bonus episodes here and there, but let's not count them. This is our hundredth episode of our main show. What you find... 100 episodes. <laughs> yeah, like, thank you. Like, before we even get into, like, because we're going to open up and talk a little bit about, like, the show. We're going to review things. But, you know, really from the bottom of our hearts, you know, both from myself and Vero, to everybody that's been along for the ride, if you came at episode one, if you came at episode 99, if you've came at all, uh... um, I like it when people come. But regardless of whether you're here from the start or just joining us, this is your first episode. This is your hundredth episode. Thank you. It's when we started the show, it was kind of an exercise in, I I mean, we approached it almost from an exercise in potential failure. Um, We weren't sure if it was going to go anywhere. We had no Um, idea if we'd actually have an audience. We thought we did, but we weren't sure at all. And we've been kind of blown away by the response we've gotten, actually. It's... um, because what we were discussing, it's, um, I guess, like, well, because this is our 100th episode, so we're going to talk a little bit about the show and the fandom and, like, how things have, you know, sort of developed over the past two years. But we got to go all the way back to 
November of 2015. Um, Vero and I, I had recently gotten out of a relationship that ended poorly. And Vera and I were talking about relationships and mindfulness and philosophy. And I, I mentioned that um, I had really wanted at some point to do a podcast that focused on personal development and mindfulness and being the best you that you can be, trademark. Mm-hmm. And Vero mentioned that, hey, I would love to do a podcast that focuses on polyamorous relationships and like ethical relationships within the fandom that embrace non-monogamy or kinks that are you know beyond oh hey we sometimes bring out a whip you know or some chains uh, because that didn't really have a good voice within the fandom in terms of podcasts a lot of the advice columns that were out there focus more on the vanilla side uh, within the fandom and while those resources exist for mainstream audiences Oftentimes when you reach out to them as a fur, you have to sort of cash it in like, so I'm a furry, but before you get freaked out, <laughs> like, I'm not asking you about that. Like you, you sort of have to open up with like a thesis statement on like what the fandom is. And so we thought that there would be a, an audience for people in the fandom to have a voice within the fandom, or in this case, two voices to speak from experience about times in their lives that they have fucked up so you can avoid doing that in ways that we have unfucked ourselves. Yeah, it was kind of an, the idea was that we'd allow the fandom to benefit from our mistakes and kind of learn from the school of hard knocks without having to actually go through those hard knocks themselves. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is like there's a lot of resources out there that are just either they were written a long time ago or they're just maybe it's in a style or a format that isn't quite as appealing to say your typical furry. And it was kind of the, the thought was that there's all this great resources and knowledge out there as well. So not just our own mistakes, but also some of these resources we kind of just, you know, tried to digest and almost do a free digest version of a variety of like polyamory and ethical non-monogamy resources and power exchange resources that are out there just because i mean there's definitely we felt like there's this unmet need in the fandom for this information and there wasn't really a great way to get it that was actually a fandom source and so that's kind of where we saw our niche uh being but we weren't actually sure again if anyone would actually come and pay attention to us because like who the hell were we to be doing this and who the hell were we to talk about this and i mean people like still say that to us and we're like well believe me we've had asked ourselves this question many times (laughs) you know Right. Yeah. (laughs) Essentially, the idea is as well, it doesn't matter who we are if the information is good. And that's always kind of the perspective that we've taken is like, well, we're just going to present well researched, well thought out information. And you can judge it on its own merits. Who we are shouldn't actually matter all that much if what we're saying just has the ring of truth to it. Right. But that's been kind of a fun journey as well. Is, you know, apparently we weren't the only ones to think that we had something good going on because we've been had some great national media appearances and stuff. And it's been a kind of a wild ride, but do you want to break in there, Metrico? Yes, I did. Um, I did want to address the, the, the point of like credibility, why, why we do the thing that we do and why we are qualified to do the thing that we do. And what we do is, is essentially um, what the agony aunts and agony uncles of old journalism would do. And I'm talking like Miss Manners, Miss Maple, things like that, where readers would write in to a staff journalist, an editorialist with 
relationship questions, life questions. And oftentimes the individuals behind those accounts, the, the mismanners, would not necessarily be somebody that had like a PhD in psychology or a PhD in psychiatry. It's it's they would be regular individuals that were well read and had a good understanding of how things work. Really, the the successful creed of somebody that is a relationship advice columnist or podcaster is you give advice that is meaningful and heartful. And your credibility, your legitimacy comes from essentially the audience response and how people relate to the content. And, and there is certainly a less genuine approach to doing things where you just sort of rehash information that you've encountered. But one of the things that we were hyper-focused on is a lot of our show topics have focused on areas in our own lives where we have had failures, um, we have had shortcomings, and that's why we decided to do, an, rather than a reader's questions only response style show, which we do every now and then, but we wanted to focus on a topic show because A, that's evergreen, and B, we can come from a place of vulnerability, which gave much more credibility, much more, it, it made the show more genuine to us and feel more real because we're telling our stories and our own shortcomings and our own failures and how we managed to overcome them and sharing the wisdom and the knowledge and the education that we've had. And for us, that was kind of, you know, feral attraction was our contribution to a fandom that has contributed so much in our lives. And so we wanted to make sure that when we approached it, we approached it from a place of, you know, genuine emotion and feeling and understanding versus just, mechanical well if you read plato you would understand <laughs> next yeah i mean that's the thing is like we, we kind of came at this from a, a humble perspective you know you know who are we to be doing this but the fact is someone we've kind of felt well someone needs to do it because we just felt like this needed to be a thing so i mean we never really claimed to be experts it was just the fact was that you know we've made these mistakes and frankly, when I screw something up, if you go back and listen to the, you know, Collie's uh, Follies and Metrico's Mistakes episode, that was one of my favorites, by the way. Um, you can hear about some of the many ways we tactically screwed things up in the past. But when I make mistakes, the thing that I do is I run to the library and I read a ton of books about it and I try to figure out how to be better. And I've got, I'm really passionate about self-improvement. And I, I feel like I kind of bring my passion for self-improvement to the show because I, I really want to share that. You know, this is how you can you can be better. This is how you can make your life better. This is how you can be a happier person. This is how you can be more satisfied in your relationships. And being able to, to help other people get there is really rewarding for me because that's a journey that was really tough for me and that I had to put a lot of work into. And if I if I could ha if I'd had somebody giving me a helping hand on that journey, I would have been immensely grateful. So it's extremely rewarding to me to be able to be that person for others. And the fact that we've had the amazing response that we have uh, has just been super personally rewarding for me and honestly pretty sustaining for me emotionally during the last uh, couple of years as well. So I have to just say thanks to all of our fans for being uh, as awesome and supportive and for reaching out to us and letting us know how much you appreciate our content. Because frankly, without those supportive messages, I'm not sure if we would have been able to keep going this long. Because frankly, we do just do it as a service to the community and we do actually get a lot of hate mail 
So the fact that there are at least some people out there who find us useful is certainly uh, is a good thing to be aware of, right? I mean, when we record this show, it's just the two of us. I mean, when we started, we were in the same room. But currently, you're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. There's three hours difference between us. It's I'm just coming from work. You're just waking up. Like We are two voices howling in the darkness. And there's no live audience. We don't have a live reaction. We don't do a lot of editing. What we basically produce is what you hear, warts and all. And so hearing that the content was meaningful or you laughed at one of my stupid jokes or you found some really great resources to follow up on is really kind of rewarding to us because even if we ignore kind of the the people who are less than polite when they reach out to us and wish us ill, part of what I find to be important is that we build a community of positivity. And that was really one of our goals. We wanted to have people that would be able to, to spend time together, to meet each other, and, and to promote kind of goodwill and positivity because when we started the podcast it was really a period of time where there was a lot in flux there wasn't a lot of positive you know going on it's we wanted people to feel comfortable with expressing themselves in a way that was non-judgmental and expressing their likes in a non-judgmental way and being able to ask questions in a space that was safe for them and queer for them and they were able to explore. And I, I would like to think that we've done a good job of that. And if the chat rooms that we have on Telegram are any indication and the live shows that we run are any indication. And the underwear parties that we throw. <laughs> it seems to be that people enjoy the content both like on a general level and maybe like on a more sexual level for the underwear parties that you throw, let's be real. But it's we wanted people to be, feel free of their shame and to be able to accept themselves for who they are and to be with people that would help them on that journey. And, and that's really just been kind of a blessing to see that come to fruition throughout the two years that we've been doing the show. And like, you know, we are we in some ways are kind of social commentators in that sense, because we're trying to establish all of our I mean, the overall purpose of our show is to make the furry community and our own community of, of fans, like a place that is, you know, sex positive, body positive, um, you know, pretty much tolerant of all who are able to tolerate others. And that is, you know, a, an environment of non-judgment. It's an environment of empathy. It's an environment in which shame doesn't really have much of a place. It's an environment where nonviolent communication kind of rules the day and people are actively listening to each other's needs and wants and being respectful towards one another and, you know, trying to encourage that, but whether it's at a sex party or whether that's in a, a chat room that we run, whether that's, you know, just by being in your ears through the show, whether that's by, you know, talking to you at a panel that I've been at and I had an opportunity to, to travel to a number of conventions and present you know, panels at, con at conventions, what, you know, however you first encountered us or however you prefer to encounter us, uh, we, you know, we really appreciate that you're willing to participate with us in this 
this project of making the, the fandom and our community a kind of safer and more tolerant place for people to be themselves in a way that can be respected and that is not harmful to others. Right. And one of the more, I'll call it strange side effects to, to us doing a show together um, is that we got mainstream attention rather quickly. And I know you were going to talk about how, I mean, what, within 10 episodes of us starting the show, we were, uh, we had an email hit our inbox um, from Nancy Hartunian asking, hey, would you like to be on the Savage Love cast? And that was pretty darn surreal because, I mean, in starting our advice column podcast, we naturally had maybe borrowed a little heavily from a certain Mr. <laughs> Savage in his approach to uh, this sort of thing. So uh, it was kind of humbling and awesome to uh, get that kind of attention so quickly and then to have this totally surreal experience of being on the Savage Lovecast uh, and have a like positive response uh, from Mr. Savage. That was pretty darn cool, wasn't it? I remember when we recorded the show. And again, guys, this is going to be like the most nostalgic you'll ever hear me. <laughs> But I was working um, at that time. I was still working at Google. Um, I'll pull the veil a little bit further back. I was working for Google when we started the show. And um, I was working overnight and I ended up having to come over to your place to sleep because we were concerned that I wouldn't wake up in time <laughs> in order to record so in the like any slumber party right before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I kicked you out of your bed and like, it was basically, I shambled into your bed um, and you had a nice Casper mattress. If you'd like to sponsor us, Casper, please let us know. Um, and passed out. And then he woke me up because he had to leave to get an audio splitter. And I'm just like, okay, go away. And then we recorded and it was, it was really quite lovely. And he asked us back, which was even more amazing. And you were able to go back and answer more fandom specific questions um, initially we were there as a second opinion, which is still very surreal. Cause it's like, we're just here like shouting into the wilderness. That is the fandom. And do you think that we're qualified to be a second opinion? I guess, I think at that point, that's when we're like, Oh, we have something. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then he told like, Oh, and everyone should listen to your advice. You guys are really good at this and said that like on the air and we were kind of floored, but you know, that ended up having effects and we ended up getting, other media attention from Playboy, which is also surreal to say that, you know, oh, Playboy's color sex advice, life changing, no big deal. You know, that's kind of cool. But um, like, I'm God just lost bro. And I'm not saying this stuff because I like, you know, to be arrogant, it's just like, I'm just, I'm kind of humbled and still in, in shock that, that any of it happened. So like, I think it's just really cool, but you know, it's great because it, it has given us a bit more of a platform and we've gotten even some fans who are not furries and hello, all of you non-furry fans. We we appreciate you. You are not forgotten. We still maintain our show as being a overall furry show, and so naturally we we kind of speak to our core furry fans a bit more. But we I, we realize that our advice is kind of more broadly applicable, and we very much appreciate those of you who are not furs who who also choose to listen to us. But um, it's just been wonderful to have the opportunity to influence people, and what they tell us is a very positive way because we get. So many, I mean, I, I've lost count of how many awesome emails and, and text messages and anonymous comments and things we've gotten from people telling us how we've improved their relationship or you know, gotten them out of a hard 
patch or, you know, help them make a decision they were having difficulty with or, you know, any number of things gotten them unstuck on something and you know, helping people get unstuck in that way, in a way that they feel like they can live more authentically and be more in tune with their own needs and wants and to maybe listen empathetically to their partner's needs and wants a bit better. You know, all the times we've been told that we've helped people along in that process, I just, again, I, I feel like super, super uh, grateful every time I hear that. So that's really what's been keeping us going. And the media appearances and stuff were awesome. But frankly, uh, it's the, the individual contact we've gotten from our, our, our fans that is most personally rewarding for me over the last couple of years. You know, one of the things that I noticed, uh, so when Deborah so reached out to us and um, one of our guests, one of our friends, um, who again, helped us, you know, have an amazing episode um, on the show that exposed people to content that maybe they wouldn't get. It's um, Deborah um, is a doctor in sexology, um, which focuses on like how the brain and why the brain acts the way it does in regards to like your sexual preferences, your kinks, your fetishes, things of that nature, and also paraphilias. Um, but I remember when we were doing the Playboy interview, it's she, like the last question on there, like I went like, question about the podcast, question about the show, question about relationships, question about relationships, advice question, and then cultural question. And the question was about the alt within the fandom. And... I, I thought that to be kind of, you know, initially kind of strange because we're we're here to talk about the show. And then it's like, tell us about Nazi furs. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, but I realized that, you know, and, and we spoke out very clearly about how Nazi furs were kind of a nuisance and really annoying and a vocal minority that we hoped um, we would effectively be rid of or rid ourselves of and then we kind of prophesied um, uh dio's kind of investigations into the fandom i talked about how mm-hmm. the alt-right was using the furry fandom as a vulnerable recruiting ground for people who are otherwise kind of isolated and, and lonely mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny because that ended up being really prescient and that's kind of how things ended up playing out but we were kind of er- er- weirdly early on talking about it and from like that perspective well, and we ended up getting a hell of a lot of hate mail from that all the hate oh yes encouraged, by the way it's not usually people telling us that we, we suck at what we do it's usually people um of the alt furry persuasion who just would like to see us not be in good places i guess but you know that's fine yeah. i don't really regret saying what we did i think it was actually pretty much spot on but uh, it was kind of interesting to see how everything's played out since we gave that interview uh frankly yeah i mean it's been important to me, and you'll notice at the beginning and at the end of every show, we start off by giving our our names. Now, mind you, of course, these aren't our real names, and I think it's good that we don't kind of include it. If you really want to know our real names, like, and you know me, like, I'm cool, let's do it. I don't really care that much, but everything that I say on the show and in relation to the show, everything that I have said and will say, I sign my name to. And a lot of the comments about hate, you know, death threats, people sending us just vile, despicable things. Nobody signs your name to it. You guys said that anonymously. And that's always been a major sort of irk of mine, a major pet peeve. If you are going to be hateful towards somebody, you should give them the ability to respond. What they don't quite understand 
is that we have a platform on a weekly basis and I don't need to know somebody's name to respond to their hate. And that's what we've been doing. And it's quite honestly, we'll mention it in passing. Um, and we have gotten a lot of apologies actually down the line of people who were like, yeah, I kind of spoke out of ignorance and out of spite and I'm really sorry. And, you know, we appreciate that. And it takes a lot to apologize for behavior that you've done that is less than positive. Um, and it's really been our hope that people who do identify as being alt-right, especially within the fandom, get better. And it's it's important to understand that not everybody that's a part of this movement, we'll call it, um, really identifies with far-right or Nazi ideology. For some people, it's just a community that welcomes them. And they're afraid of leaving it because they're afraid of not being welcome in the main community that they've been making fun of. And it's not like it's just a matter of falling with the wrong crowd either. The, I mean, as we now know from a lot of like really kind of good investigative journalism we've even had from within the fandom, um, the alt-right specifically targeted furries because they're a vulnerable group and because they can get this kind of social networking effect of, well, all your friends are with us already. So if you're not with us, you know, you, you don't would hate to be alone, wouldn't you? And they had this really slick marketing campaign, essentially, where they, they actually encourage furries to kind of fall in with the wrong crowd. And especially those who are maybe a little bit um, less socially successful because they offer community. And that's often what draws people to the fandom to begin with is the offer of community. And so I think it's important to remember that not all people are drawn to that community be because they're necessarily ideological Nazis. Some of them are just looking to stay close to their friends or looking for, to make new friends and see, well, if I do the special handshake and what they'll accept me here. And that, that, that acceptance is a powerful thing. And that's why, you know, my personal take on one of the great ways of, you know, defeating the Nazi for movement, and I know it's really controversial of me to say, but, um, you know, I'm a proponent of Marshall Rosenberg, who really believed in the power of nonviolent communication to resolve dif uh, differences. And he actually even applied it in diplomacy to trying to work on things like the, the Arab-Israeli conflict and things that are pretty contentious. Uh, but his idea was always that you don't, you know, you don't win someone over to your side by yelling at them or, ex or excluding them or shutting them out and, and never listening to their views. If you're, if you're strong enough and you can stomach it, in some cases, it's worthwhile to still tr attempt to listen empathetically to someone who is maybe thinking about questioning their views or thinking about leaving that group. Maybe they're, they're not entirely sure where that they want to be there. But to give, give those people a path to redemption by being willing to listen for the needs and wants and to empathize and recognize that in some cases those people don't want to be there but feel like they don't have much choice. Um, sometimes you can actually win those people back out and bring them, out of the, bring them back into the fold, so to speak, and kind of allow them to recover and, and uh, renounce the previous views and give them a new community where they can actually find that acceptance that's more positive and tolerant and less hateful. Um, sometimes the way to be intolerant to intolerance is actually to, uh, kind of defeat it at its source and kind of, you know, turn that person and you can't turn someone by blocking them and shutting them out. And that's why, because I, I do feel that some people can be redeemed and some people can be turned. Uh, I don't really support the idea of using block lists, uh, at least in my own personal life. 
to eliminate the alt furs or alt right from my feeds because in some cases I do want to be able to engage and to offer alternative viewpoints and to say, hey, I understand you're why you're angry. Maybe try to offer some, you know, I get some explanations if you know I, these are needs and wants that I understand aren't getting met, and I understand why that makes you angry. But here's how I think about that, or here's how I would solve that problem. And I do that from time to time because I, I do want to show people that there's another way, and it's really hard to do that if you if you don't want, you know, to engage. So, you know, if you're somebody who's personally being attacked or you're someone who is very easily triggered by, you know, this type of, you know, speech, I totally understand using blacklists and, and, you know, everyone has their own personal boundaries, but I am kind of passionate about uh, offering people a path to redemption. And that's, that's just a personal belief that I hold. And it's kind of enshrined in the values that we talk about on the podcast as well. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you have to put up with violations of your own personal boundaries. And it's always important to keep that in mind. Right. Yeah, exactly that it's it's we're not saying that people need to go tell it on the mountain and they need to reach out to your local nazi to try to convert them away what i found is that by offering a channel which i mean to be fair my twitter is like 10 percent mindfulness and 90 percent what the fuck is he yeah. talking about <laughs> shit posts um but i find that even though it's open to mockery and I've stumbled across logs where people are, you know, making fun of the tweets, especially like from an alt-right perspective. People who engage with it and then engage with me in private that are from, you know, that group tend to find that it's it's not that they're being there's there's less of a risk of them being shunned if they're a good person versus if they continue in a path of like hatefulness. I don't seek out, I don't go to random telegram chat rooms sniffing out for alt furs i actively avoid them because i don't want to have really anything to do with them but in the cases where younger people because the alt fur movement does tend to prey on younger people especially men and especially white men young white teenagers in cases where they approach me and they ask questions i'm more than happy to answer them however i don't tolerate hate speech and that's a very important thing. One thing that I feel like we've missed the mark, and it's something that we can improve on, is we have to judge intent. And this goes for the left and for the right. We need to be able to judge, be better judges of the intention of somebody. I've seen cases where people who are fairly progressive and they are trying their best, like maybe they're they're learning and sometimes they say something that comes out incredibly wrong. I'll give an example from my life. Um, and I, I have to resort to using some minor epithets, unfortunately, in order to sort of tell the story. So my apologies here. But um, especially within like the drag community, it's there in the 90s and 2000s and really up until recently. Um, transphobic slurs were just kind of common and in fact one of the more popular venues that we had um was was called and again apologies but the tranny shack and it was acceptable and you would like i'm going to the tea shack um we've it's since changed because we know that that's not acceptable but you would have people who would have trans friends and they would you know have this kind of speech and 
obviously now we're like, oh God, like what the hell were you thinking? But the intent wasn't one out of hate or malice. It was definitely one out of privilege and one that once we recognized it, it was altered. But when people speak out of priv- uh, privilege or ignorance, you know, we, and especially those of us who, who have had the benefit of, of learning and, and educating ourselves and being better at being less shitty should take the opportunity and the initiative to speak out and say, hey, 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 like I've been there. I've said that shit too. Here's why it's not cool. And you can be annoying. I, I don't like the, the missive that SJWs are pushing PC culture. I don't think that that's fair. I don't think PC culture is what we're trying to advocate for. I like the idea that we're advocating for a queered culture because everybody benefits from political correctness, but everybody benefits even more from a queered space because you can be free to express yourself. You're free to be yourself. I I like the idea of a queered space more. Political correctness is such a buzzword, and I think that we could move away from it and say, no, we're trying to queer the space because heterosexual men, heterosexual females, cisgendered individuals, trans individuals, we all benefit from this queered space. At the same time, uh, there has been an issue that I see kind of where classical liberal values have kind of eroded and we've kind of gotten into these shouting matches where, you know, because someone says something in a way that you find to be a microaggression or, you know, whatever, that that person is no longer worth listening to and we can no longer engage with their ideas because we're going to criticize their speech. And so there's a lot of engaging in meta arguments and there's not a whole lot of, you know, rational discourse actually going on where people are are having meetings of the minds and actually really weighing these heavy issues. And it's really tough to actually make progress on anything without being able to accomplish big tent politics and to actually be able to come together and compromise and to engage. And it's that lack of, of actual proper engagement and lack of active listening that to me is really a, a fundamental problem. Sometimes within the fandom, uh, as I mentioned earlier, with you know some of the altfers who maybe could benefit from uh, kind of being turned away from the the hateful groups that they've become a part of, uh, but also just in society in general. Like obviously during the course of our podcast, Donald Trump entered the White House, and we now you know have a, oh. yeah, we have a pretty great understanding of how that happened. But a lot of it, you know, it did come from this idea of, of kind of just tuning out and, and not even acknowledging that the other side existed. So that we kind of had a blind spot as progressives to the fact that Trump was even a valid threat because we just kind of refused to believe it because we weren't really engaging with those people. We weren't listening to their concerns. We weren't really, we were so, we, we were so, you know, upset about their speech and, Oh, those are just racist bigots. And who cares about those people? No one was actually listening to them. And so we ended up developing this gigantic blind spot as a society. Now we're paying the prices for that. So, you know, I think it's, that's, that's one view, right? But I think, you know, that, that, that erosion of classical liberal values and, and the, the kind of the replacement of intellectual discourse with this idea of I'm not going to listen to you unless your speech meets my, you know, qualifications. Um, that's, I mean, again, I understand personal boundaries are always are really super important and you protect your emotional health. But at the same time, Look, going out of your way to look for uh, offense and outrage has, I think, kind of eroded our discourse to the point where it's really hard to even have a political conversation in the United States anymore. 
And we have to find a way to dig our way out of that if we're going to get back to being a really progressive uh, society. And I think the fandom has done better than society at large at remaining a fairly mm-hmm. progressive culture because we're certainly yeah. better at this than society at large has been. But I think it's important to remember why that's important and to remember that, hey, the furry fandom is a huge growing community. We have tons and tons of demographics inside of our community now. And if we're all going to remain you know, a single furry fandom, we are going to have to learn how to do this rational discourse and compromise thing because it's going to be too big of a constituency to just, you know, um, rely on the fact that we're furries to smooth things over. You know what I mean? I mean, one uh, on one hand, I agree. Like, it's – I do think that it is, again, important to judge intent. And at no point should we become comfortable or should we aid or bet hateful, violent speech. And in some cases, there is no compromise. It's I, I find that you may never be able to compromise with somebody who is a full-blown actual Nazi. Like, there's no point in engaging in that. Nope. But for somebody who is younger, maybe they come from a fairly conservative family like me, and they were raised to believe that conservative values are kind of the backbone of society. They were raised to believe that Ayn Rand is the ideal ethical and moral philosophy that we should have. They're coming from a place of extreme ignorance. And we should consider where people are coming from before we cancel them, so to speak. It's obviously there are people who should know better. And when they speak from a place of ignorance, it's good to correct them. And it's good to do so in a way that calls attention to it. But we should be hesitant to call out every single person. It's The fandom does a really good job of self-policing. And in fact, we do such a good job that we are essentially the model for most other communities. And because of this, we have to make sure that we're not overwielding that that banhammer, so to speak. We're never going to be able to rationalize hatred, and we should never find common ground with hatred. We should never become tolerant to intolerance because that's a paradox. What we should do is we should ensure that we are educating those that are younger than us, those that are more ignorant than us. And again, this is a mantle that all of us have to take up. And sometimes that means that we speak with people who use language that is not correct or is distasteful. They refer to people in ways that we would prefer for them not to. If we respond in an act of goodwill, chances are they will be more likely to listen. I found that angrily lashing out is a great way to make people feel more vulnerable and more isolated. And I'm speaking more from like my political background here because I do have a substantial experience in, in this sort of field. Oftentimes you would have to find areas of similarity in order to drive a compromise. And that similarity could be in your upbringing. That similarity could be in what music you like. That similarity could be, hey, we both like the same show. Hey, do you remember when this happened in the show and that was kind of shitty? Well, you're kind of doing that right now. And by finding metaphors and by finding examples that show that you are somewhat invested, you can drive change. Right now, a lot of the issue that I see is that there are people that want to do good. 
there are people that want to be better. They just don't know how to get started and they're afraid to get started because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing or making the wrong joke and finding themselves on the receiving end of a torrent of anger. So it's important that we find ways to encourage positive growth in individuals that promote pluralism because we exist in a plural intersectional fandom and we share a plural intersectional burden. It's important that we try to make sure that people who are trying to move in progressive, healthful, helpful ways are supported. So the fandom, we've been doing a really good job of that. I see more of an issue with that in general. And I really think that the fandom, we need to continue that strive in order to, to continue to be an example. People look up to us as leaders of progressivism. And if you look, progressive values are on the uprise. There are massive upsets, politically speaking, at least in the United States, where states that have been strongly conservative are turning progressive. We're seeing progressive candidates winning seats in local elections, in national elections, and we're seeing individuals, candidates that come from places of hate are thrown out of office, either because of their own sexual misconduct or because we can't stomach their bullshit anymore. We have a unique position within the fandom to be arbiters of morality and to speak on behalf of morality. And we can talk about difficult subjects because when people look at us, they see a cute little fuzzy animal avatar. And it allows that anthropomorphism allows for us to discuss difficult conversations and difficult topics. Yeah, we're in a really cool place of privilege. And the privilege that we have is that we now have an audience and we have a pulpit sort of from which to kind of do some social commentary and it's cool. It's a really great, and I, I, again, I'm humbled by having that privilege, but I think we have a duty to use that power to make the fandom, like I said, in any way we can, a more tolerant and kind of loving place. And that's always been our mission is to basically make the fandom a more loving, more livable space for people to actually achieve happiness inside of. Right. And we're going to keep working to the best of our ability to achieve that in the fandom because our mission statement is something that's really important to me. And, you know, I, I wrote it with a lot of love because this show is kind of a labor of love for me. And I've been, frankly, I produced the show out of a lot of hurt. I was hurt a lot and I was hurting at the time that we put the show together. And we wanted, it was kind of a way for me to actually work through my own pain of all the, all the things that I've been hurt by and trying to figure my own life out uh, inside of the furry community. And I really felt an obligation to help other people not experience some of that pain. Right. So I'm going to keep working to do that because it's really something I'm passionate about. And I'm going to keep bringing my passion to this project that we set out on. And that's something that I, at least, um, I'm really proud of uh, to continue to contribute to. I know that in certain cases, I've been you know, traveling a lot. And this, this last year, has been, there's been a lot of upheaval in my own personal life. Uh, and sometimes I feel like, you know, that resulted in me being a little bit less present for the show than I would have liked to have been. But that isn't because the show's not important to me or because this isn't still a, a passion project for me. It's just because I've had a lot going on lately. But hopefully things, at least in my personal life, uh, begin to sort out and the next 100 episodes can be a little bit less uh, arduous and stressful <laughs> for us to produce. But on that note, there, there are some other mm -hmm. uh, things we'd like to discuss. Isn't that right, Metrico? Yeah. I mean, what's important for us to note is that this is a show that is a labor of love and we are works in, pro in progress. 
we have made mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes and we will continue to grow. But we hope that people benefit from our mistakes being in a public way and our retractions and our apologies and our growth being in a public way. We sometimes, you know, might see things that make people sort of question us. And as always, if you have questions about what we're trying to say or our meanings or intentions behind our, our, our words, always come to us and ask for clarification if you want. It's If we get something wrong, we get something wrong. We will be the first to acknowledge it. We will be the first to say our bad and we will try our best to never repeat that mistake again. Learning, you know, it's it's all a progress. It's relationships, this show, everything in our lives has has been a work in progress. And we've always taken a worse than all approach too. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's why I'm very publicly vulnerable in a lot a lot of ways because I feel like people benefit from seeing that mm-hmm. vulnerability and seeing the fact that I'm a human being who screws up. And that doesn't, right. I'm not speaking from a place of authority or being an expert. I'm speaking from a place of, hey, I screwed this up too. Let me tell you mm-hmm. how I fixed that for myself. You right. know, that's kind of the approach. And I think that's actually mm-hmm. resonated with people. I'm really happy that that's the case. And oftentimes it's not even like back in the day. It's more like, <laughs> so last Tuesday. Yeah, um... like yesterday I did that thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there are three things that we can discuss. Like in terms of the show, when we started – you know, Vero was in New York City with me. Now he's in Seattle and there's a lot more travel. The show has become a lot more mobile. It's we do a lot more live events. There are a lot more panels. It's the community has expanded. There have been a lot of really positive changes. And there will continue to be changes. And that sort of brings us to the main topic of this episode. And, and thank you for sort of um, humoring us as we waxed about the show and the fandom. It's our hundredth episode. Like, let us have one. We just want one where we just get to talk about, about ourselves for a little bit and like a way that makes us like not look to be ass monkeys. Um, so the main topic of this week is difficult decisions. And this is an area that I struggle with a lot and I've developed ways to help me, make decisions that are difficult. And the reason that we chose this for a hundredth episode is because there will be a major change in the show moving forward. Um, I will be leaving the show and it's important. <laughs> yeah. I, I, surprise. Um, no, we talked yeah, about no. this. That wasn't a surprise. For yeah. that, by yeah, the way. <laughs> I mean, well, also we've already recorded the show, so you would have know. already known. Yeah, that's you true. Had a, <laughs> false start. <laughs> I will be leaving the show at the end of March and to sort of explain why that is. um, As we've said, this show is a labor of love and it is something that we do. And I hate to call it our spare time, but it is something that we do on top of our normal lives. Um, Since the inception of the show, I have worked a standard job. And I work a standard 40 hours plus a week and I record the show and I edit the show. And there's a lot of investment that goes into my end. A lot of what I did, especially in the initial stages of the show, 
are on the back end. If you're really interested, it's Vero is more of the public face because I'm more of a heel than he is. And um, but but I know more, a heel. I'm a good dog. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it's I handled a lot of the back end things because I'm better with certain tools that I have more of a background and an aptitude for things like search engine optimization and making sure that our website is indexed properly and making sure that our RSS feeds upload to the various services we use in an appropriate way. So a lot of what I do is more on the back end. I do the editing for the show um, at, at the start and um, in recent times I've picked that back up. And so because of that, a lot of my work is passive and then active in large bursts. So when we record the show, we record for roughly the same amount of time that you hear the recording for, and then I do a show edit. And sometimes that edit can take 30 minutes. Sometimes that edit can take two days. And it depends upon the quality of the audio, how the audio was transcribed, whether or not our audio recording system fucked up. There are a lot of variables. And I realized when I went to Awesome Games Done Quick, and this was back in uh, January, I was pretty much isolated from the show and isolated from most social networking. And I was just me and um, one of my very, very, very close and dear friends. And I realized that I was having a really good time. And I started to think about why I was feeling so awesome because generally vacations stress me the fuck out. And I realized it was because this was the first time that I was able to invest in myself in a very long time. Doing the show, being kind of public with my life, my mistakes, my thoughts, um, there is a certain amount of vulnerability that comes with it, but there is also a certain amount of work that comes with it. And it might sound silly that when your life is so public, you don't get a public life. Like, you... you, you it's difficult for me to think about a private life because everything is so public. I can't invest in myself because I'm spending a lot of time making sure that everything with the show is good, new topics for the show, a lot of reading, a lot of research. And so a lot of my spare time essentially got eaten up by the show. And when you work 40 hours a week on top of recording a show, on top of editing a show, it's exhausting. And it's important to point out that there's a huge difference between Metrico and I on this front. And I empathize with the the kind of emotional bandwidth constraints that Metrico is operating under. But I don't operate under the same constraints. Uh, I kind of organize my life around my lifestyle, which is to, poly, to be polyamorous. And to because of that, I, I do travel a lot. And I, I'm able to devote a lot more time to the show because I'm self-employed. And therefore, my schedule is a hell of a lot more flexible than Metrico's schedule. So it's a lot less it's a lot less work for me to do the show. And also, it's actually a lot more aligned with my career goals because I actually am seeking a career as a professional life coach and professional relationship coach. And I also plan to go back to school eventually and get into uh, couples and family therapy if I have the opportunity to in the next few years. So this is something that I've realized is kind of my my, my passion and something that I kind of am devoting my life to. And because of that, I can justify putting a lot more time into the show because essentially it's a form of marketing for me. If this is something that I'm actually going to be doing. Right. So um, that's why I have, you know, all, all of my incentives are aligned to continue to invest in this. Whereas for Metrico, 
it's not quite as well aligned with the things that he's needing to do in his life right now. And it makes sense that he might be needing to take a step back. It doesn't mean that he's abandoning the community or that he's going to be gone from the internet or you can never talk to Mexico again. Um, it's not like, it's not like he's leaving in, 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 in it kind of uh, because he has ideological differences with me or because we've had a falling out or anything like that. It's just a rec- Again, we talk about on the show, the need to, to listen to someone empathetically and to validate their needs and wants and Metrico is very clearly, as you just heard him, uh, you know, he just expressed his needs and his wants and he talked about how the show isn't really meeting his needs or his wants right now. And I think as a friend, listening empathetically to what Metrico is saying, I have to recognize that he's making a good decision for himself. And that's why I, have, I, I remain happy for him, despite the fact that I'm a little bit sad for myself and a bit sad for the, for the show that we won't have a red panda around quite as much anymore. But I do it thank is, you for your service, Panda. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I mean, it is a bittersweet decision because part of me doesn't want to go, but part of me knows that if I don't, I'm going to be kind of stuck feeling miserable. And it's not that the show is causing me misery. It's the fact that I'm so... When I thought about the good moments in my life when I was at Awesome Games Done Quick, I realized that they were all past tense. And I was not making memories and that was kind of a very difficult thing for me to come to a realization of there were moments that stood out but it was just not a pleasant sort of reflection and i need to be able to change that we we spoke about at the top of the show when vero and i came together to sort of formulate feral attraction um we, we had a few differences. I wanted to talk about mindfulness and self-improvement, whereas Vero was more focused on ethical polyamory and non-monogamous relationships. Well, naturally, the mindfulness stuff is a huge component of that. So I, I talk about that stuff, exactly. too, but it's a different perspective. right? But different perspectives. And what it ultimately boils down to is... The first two seasons of Feral Attraction are really great in terms of laying groundwork. We talk about a lot of core concepts, how to handle internalized shame, how to handle nonviolent communication, how to learn from your mistakes, how to employ empathy. What is the difference between jealousy and envy? These are things that are important core concepts. These are the 101 and 102s of healthy relationships. I need to focus on my own relationships now. And to be honest, when it comes to talking about ethical non-monogamy, I'm sort of at a disadvantage because that's not something that interests me in a personal way for my own life. And while I have had experience, a lot of it is very much so in the past. And so while it's good to have the perspective of like a monogamous panda, it's you're not going to be losing anything with my departure. You'll be losing my voice, sure, but I'm not leaving the internet. I'm just leaving the show, and that's fine. It's 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 a sad departure for for me and for Vero as well. But it's a departure that has to happen, and it was a difficult decision that I had to make, and. When I was busy making this decision, and it was something that I thought about for several, several, several weeks, and 
I really gave it some thought and I started to dread having to make like the final decision because I knew that it was going to suck. And so I kind of put it off for a lot. And this, this kind of is a wonderful segue into the main topic of the show, which is difficult decisions. I had to employ a lot of techniques that I've learned over the course of the past few years in order to come up with, with a solution to sort of break the tie, break the, the inertia that was fueling me not wanting to speak about this. Um, so one thing that I do, especially when I'm faced with a decision that is incredibly difficult, that is kind of damaging to myself or potentially damaging or something that's going to hurt me to make, like breaking up with somebody or leaving the show, is I pretend that I'm advising a friend. Um, I actually use um, a KK Slater Amiibo um, because I don't really have like in-person friends and it's kind of weird. I don't want to look like I'm John Wayne addressing like an empty chair <laughs> at the <laughs> RNC. Um, I know that works for like prayer for some people, but like I look, I like having something tangible and I learned that from um, like computer science, like the rubber duck test. So I have a little KK Slider Amiibo. He's cute. He's sitting on a tree. He has a little guitar and he is always listening to me um, because I think the FBI has it chipped. Um, but I pretend that he is my friend and not my husband. And I advise him as if he's me. And the reason that I do that is because even though I am alexithymiac and I do have a weird bungled up series of emotions... I do have short-term emotions and I do have nostalgia and I do have memories and those color my decision-making and they color yours too, possibly even more because you have more of them. So what happens is, for example, if you want to break up with somebody or maybe you want to get back together with somebody, you let the positive memories sort of color that decision oh, well, remember that time when you were sick and he went to the store and got you a ginger ale? That was really nice. And you tend to gloss over the rational part of you that is like, yeah, do you remember that time that he kicked the shit out of you? You don't want to have temporary short-term emotions and nostalgia to get in the way of a rational decision. It's passion rules reason. And with important decisions that are difficult, we want to ensure that we're optimizing our ability to make positive choices, not ones that just feel good because they feel nostalgic and it's like being wrapped up in a warm blanket. Um, also, when you explain to somebody, like if you pretend that somebody's there or you actually have somebody, um, you have a lot of default assumptions about the decisions that you make. And sometimes those default assumptions will cause you to make the opposite decision of what you would typically want or need. So for example, um, if you're trying to break out of your comfort zone, let's say that you're considering moving across the country, your default assumption might be, well, I think Portland or I think Seattle or I think Oakland or Kansas City or wherever it might be is going to suck for the following reasons. And that's your default assumption. Those are things that are based off of hearsay rumors, things that you've seen in the news, things that you've read on Twitter. And if you have to explain as if you're advising somebody else, it can help you to overcome that and to actually come up with reasons why you would be opposed to something. 
And you might discover that you're not actually opposed to the city, you're opposed to the idea of moving. And that's a completely separate discussion and a completely different area to, to be opposed to altogether. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of basically having a dialogue with yourself is super important because getting trapped in your own head, it can be very difficult to empathize with yourself. And so this is something that Metric and I both do is I like to think of it as kind of being my own best friend where I kind of step out of myself and try to coach myself. You know, it's like, hey, Vera, what's, what's up? Why are you feeling this way? Where are these feelings coming from? What are your needs and wants in this situation? Why do you feel your needs and wants aren't being addressed? What's, what's standing in your way? Where are your blocks right now? I ask myself the same questions I would ask somebody else if I were coaching them or giving them advice. And oftentimes, by trying to answer those, those things in the forms of questions, you actually can kind of get yourself to reflect and to think about where your feelings are coming from and what your needs and wants truly are. So you can then bring your actions much more in line with your own values and your own needs and wants, and you'll end up driving a lot more joy and pleasure from the way you're conducting yourself when you're mm -hmm. able to do that. But it really comes down to just being your own best friend, or in Mexico's case, having a conversation with an amiibo. Whatever works for you, I guess. <laughs> that was said with so much judgment. <laughs> I didn't see his face, but he was like amiibo. <laughs> And I saw that. I saw that sneer. I saw that judgmental colleague face. God Bark. damn it! No, I'm just getting curious. Um, so one of the reasons that having a dialogue with yourself or with KK Slater, in which case, don't talk to my husband. Um, we are creatures of comfort, and we are creatures of comfort habits, and we will avoid making decisions that are difficult to accommodate. For example, moving because it's a pain in the ass. And you might think, oh, well, New York City isn't that bad. Sure, a bum pissed on my shoes when I was walking and I had to sit on the subway next to a pile of human excrement. But like, it's not that bad. I'm just really miserable. I don't get to sleep. I'm like hyped up on cocaine in order to get to my job because we don't sleep. Um, greatest city in the world, right? <laughs> and besides, moving would be really exhausting because you have to get movers and you have to get rent and you might have to sublet and it's just too much of a pain sometimes our convenience and our short-term comfort outweighs our decision making even if there is a long-term positive gain so when we when we speak to somebody else when we speak to ourselves or to whatever imaginary friend we might have as if we're consulting them but they're really us when you list your assumptions and then you reverse them Again, it often leads you to realize that you are full of shit. And this is my most common thing. Like, why should I not ask somebody out on a date? Well, because they'll probably say no. Well, because they'll probably. And then I reverse all of that shit. And I realize, oh, well, you know, even if they say no, it's not the end of the world. So why not? Ha ha. Um, if you list all of your assumptions about the decision, reverse each assumption to its opposite and then ask yourself how you would accomplish each reversal. You'll find that things are far more achievable and doable. And that allows for you to determine what it is you really want to get out of the decision itself. And maybe that you don't really want to leave New York City, but you want to find a better job. And maybe that you don't really want to find a better job, but you want to get the fuck out of New York City. So it's important to know what you really want. And this is a great way to sort of get through all of the sassafras 
that gets in the way of you knowing what you want. Because again, we are people, we are creatures of comfort and habit, and we are stupid. So by doing this, we can circumvent our stupidity and speak to ourselves and make decisions that are much more informed. One thing you want to make sure you're doing, though, is you want to limit the amount of information you have. And this might sound strange coming from me. I'm a mitigations expert. I went to school for this shit. I'm good with mitigations. The issue, though, is that there will always be more information than you have space to process. It is a general truism that the more information you have, the better. The catch is, is that that information is not always ready. You may not always be able to easily access the information. And so what ends up happening is there is a point of diminishing returns when you have to make a decision and you decide that the information that you're lacking is super duper more important than you making a decision. And it could be something that is actually trivial, but the fact that we don't have it makes it much more enticing and therefore feel much more valuable. Um, Ron Friedman, who's a PhD and, and speaks about decision-making, um, actually has a rather kind of insightful um, idea on this principle. And um, it, it's that curiosity is useful in general. Um, in our evolutionary past, knowing whether the rustling in the bushes belonged to a tiger or a mouse could have meant the difference between life and death. Um, we are wired to reduce uncertainty because our minds were adapted for another more hazardous time. Seeking out information comes with a downside, which accounts for the intriguing difference between the two groups. When data is missing, we overestimate its value. Our mind assumes that since we are expending resource locating information, it must be useful. And that's a major fallacy that we find ourselves falling in. If we are spending time and effort and resource, if our time is being invested into this, it must have value. Otherwise, we are wasting our time. And nobody wants to feel like they are wasting their time. Everybody wants to feel that their time is being expended in a useful way. So because of that, if you're spending time chasing waterfalls and not sticking to the lakes and the rivers that you're used to, it's going to end up very poorly for you when it comes to a decision. So it sometimes is best to stay in your lane. If you have enough information to make an informed decision, you don't need all of the information. I don't need to know if the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane to know that I probably would not want to live there because I don't speak Spanish. So there is enough information for me to make a decision. I don't need to know what the average rainfall in Seattle on a Tuesday in May if I'm facing east in a building that is pre-war, I don't need that information. But if I convince myself, if I delude myself that I need it, boy, howdy, am I going to spend my time finding it? So don't get overburdened in information. Another thing that you should do, ask yourself, is this decision reversible? If I were to make this decision and hate what happens, is this permanent? I have tattoos Tattoos are pretty damn near indelible. You can't, I mean, you can get rid of them, but they scar up and they're always there. I have scars on my body. I can't get rid of those. So is the decision you're making going to be a new tattoo? If you are moving across the country, can you reverse that decision? And the important thing to ask yourself is not whether it would be inconvenient to reverse it. But is it reversible? Is this a permanent change to your life? So the thing is, is that we make many important decisions that are life altering. 
but they're not always permanent. Um, again, moving across the country, it's a big deal, but that doesn't mean that we can never afford the opportunity to move back. It is, however, more permanent than moving across the block or moving across the state, mm-hmm. right? So there's a scale right. here, and it's important to assess like how easily could I reverse this decision? Mm-hmm. And the more, the more right. difficult it is to reverse a decision, the more time and, the more, and care you should probably put into making it, right? Exactly. You want to focus on an inconvenience. How inconvenient would it be for you if you lived in Trenton, New Jersey, and you decided you wanted to try to make it in Oakland, California? You move out there, you don't make it, you're struggling to get by. That's not a permanent life that you have there, but it sure as hell is going to be inconvenient leaving it. So the thing is, is that inconvenience can it can be overwhelming, but most decisions we make in life, they can be reverted. Um, so sometimes though, if you focus on whether or not something can be reverted, you fall into the trap of having too much information or needing too much information. And like, well, what if I travel in May and the flights are really cheap because it's off? No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't get into that. Just ask yourself on base levels. If I want to move, is it going to be more reversible if I move to say Philadelphia versus Kansas City, Missouri versus Portland, Oregon in terms like which one would be easier for me to revert from if I hated it. And once you are sort of starting the decision making process, set a time frame, set a time limit. If it's a small decision, like if you're thinking about where to go to eat, whether you want to buy, if you have two items, like you have a Coke and a Pepsi and you're like, I don't know which one I want. Give yourself a time limit. Any decision. Don't overburden yourself with the decision-making process. I give myself two minutes max for minimal, stupid, day-to-day decisions. Where do I want to eat? If I can't figure it out in two minutes, I just go someplace that I know that I'll enjoy regardless. I have some, like, fallbacks. But two minutes is enough time. I can weigh the pros and cons. Well, what if I go here? Oh, well, I've already eaten there once this week. Okay, well, let's go to this other place. Okay, done. If it's a larger decision, though, you don't want to spend two minutes and say, well, I'm moving to a new country. No. <laughs> yeah. I might want to sleep on that one. Yeah. If it's a larger decision, and especially decisions that impact groups of people, let's say that you are married. And you've been given a job offer that requires you to uproot your life. That's a decision that involves other people. And that's a decision that you want to make sure that they are involved in the decision-making process. However, you don't want to give too much time that you don't arrive at a conclusion. Some decisions have automatic built-in deadlines. Some decisions don't. Some decisions are, well, kind of want to move. You know, we can look for a new job before we move out there, look for a new place. But, you know, we're not really locked in to any time frame. So what I do is I I explain to myself and I explain to people that if you take too long to make a decision, you run out of steam, you run out of energy, you spin your wheels and you get nowhere. You're basically a train that runs out of fuel and you get you never get to your destination. If you fail to reach a decision, you haven't reached a decision. That's a very important thing. No decision is no decision. You want to always make decisions, even if the decision is no. Just kind of letting it pocket veto 
is never good because you're not in control of your life at that point. You're not in control of the circumstances. You're an ostrich with your head buried in the sand, which apparently doesn't actually happen. So take your time, but don't take too much time. If you're going to spend a few days or a week to make this decision, make sure you are using an active voice and active reasoning. Don't be passive. Sometimes you might need to take a day off. Sometimes you spin your wheels and you're burning out. Take a night off. One thing that's really cool is that the human brain, when you sleep or when you're at rest, it's still in the back end, tries to come up with solutions to problems. Um, we, you experience this a lot, like, especially if you're involved in programming or even like video games, let's say there's a puzzle in a game that you just, for the life of you can't figure out, you get frustrated, you put down the controller, you go away and you come back the next day and you solve it in five minutes. Your brain tries to piece information together when you're at rest and when you're asleep, taking time away from difficult decisions can oftentimes reinvigorate you and cause you to see new angles and new solutions that you hadn't initially considered. So sometimes a good night's sleep will give you that clearer head and it will make easier decision-making and problem-solving in store for you. Something that I would also recommend is ask if other people would be expected to do the same. Now, these are more for like things that are inconvenient to you and you don't want to do them because you feel that they're inconvenient and you feel that you might be, it's unfair that you're having to make this decision. Things like moving shifts at work, you come in and you're, they tell you, Hey, starting in two weeks, you need to be second shift. And if you're not second shift, you're no shift for us or your mate says, hey, I got a new job, but the issue is, is that it's across the country and we have to move in like two months. Ask yourself if this is a reasonable decision or a reasonable situation that other people might find yourself themselves in. If other people would be expected to at some point make the same decision. Most of the time, things that we find unfair are reasonable choices and reasonable decisions that other people have to make all the time. Sometimes we may not like having to make it and other people may not like having to make it. Almost nobody I know enjoys uprooting their life entirely. Almost nobody I know enjoys working one shift and then having to go to another one without any say. Almost nobody I know enjoys having to make decisions that have deep, meaningful impacts on their day-to-day, -day, especially ones that could be viewed as more negative. But ask yourself if it is reasonable for other people to have been asked that, especially if you think that you're being unfairly targeted. And establish a standard operating procedure. So SOPs are, are terms uh, I, I, I have become accustomed to them um, through individuals that are in the military. And basically what an SOP is, standard operating procedure is, if you are in a situation where there is no direct line of command and you find yourself in a situation, you have standard operating procedures for a varied amount of situations. And you can default to them if there's nobody there to give like exact orders or commands. So I find that having an SOP for basic choices that I might run into in the future helps to mitigate the decision-making process. 
So I use kind of an if-then approach. And you might find something else works for you, but I use if-then. So if I am offered a new job with better pay, then I will tell my current work that if they will increase my pay, I will stay. Otherwise, I will leave. If my current job tells me they will not raise my pay, then I will accept the other job. Things like that. So it takes a little bit of the decision making out of it. And while it does feel a little bit formulaic, because really it is binary in a sense, it allows for me to know exactly what I need to do in order to get to the next step. Sometimes it's kind of like when you go to the grocery store and you're hungry, you can't decide what you want, so you buy everything. Having a shopping list really helps with the decision making. A standard operating procedure for decision-making is a shopping list, and it helps you to decide that way you don't spend so much time salivating at all the junk food that you never end up eating it because you bought too much and it rots away in your cupboard. One thing that we fail to do is we fail to think oftentimes in both the short-term and the long-term. And again, it's easy to avoid making decisions because there's a short-term inconvenience, even if it presents a long-term benefit. What I like to do is I think of things in terms of consequence. I don't think of them in terms of inconvenience. There are consequences. There are positive consequences and negative consequences. You might have encountered this idea if you've had any kind of basic, you know, education in psychology. Everything is a consequence. What I try to do is I try to make decisions and set myself up for decisions and set my future decision-making skills up so that I have the most long-term positive consequence, even if I have a higher, shorter-term negative consequence. You can tolerate five minutes of shit if it means a lifetime of good. Now, I will say one point that I'll make there is uh, your emotional bandwidth and your need for self-care do, I think, come into play when making these kinds of decisions. One thing that I think about, I, I, I practice the same exact approach that Metrico does, but I do also take into account, like, what is my energy reserve right now? Is right now the best time for me to take, do this five minutes of shit? Or could I actually make my life a little bit better by doing this five minutes of shit when I have a bit more emotional bandwidth available or I'm not suffering quite as much as I am right now? Maybe if I just went through five minutes of shit, I want to give myself a little break before taking on another five minutes of shit. And it's, it's okay to listen to yourself and to, to realize when you actually do need to practice self-care and maybe be a bit more uh, short-term minded. But again, that should not be your, your, your default should always be to be willing to take on those short-term inconveniences in order to maximize long-term gain. But that can't always be the case. If you're suffering, if you've just been through something, if you're experiencing trauma right now, maybe right now isn't the time to take on that short-term pain. And you can maybe you know array your life around that. But the point, I think, is that when things are overall going relatively well, if you're in kind of your default state, again, standard operating procedures, it's, it's good to be willing to take on those short-term inconveniences in order to maximize the long-term benefit. Right. And I, I agree with that. The, the thing that I want to say about that, though, is when you're acting in short-term sort of decision-making, like if you're coming off of a traumatic you know, situation in your life or you're coming off of you know, a negative consequence for a future positive consequence. Thing is, is that when you live in the short term, you end up being a reactive person. You are reacting to the events in your life and you are not acting in a proactive fashion. So it's important to understand that 
we every now and then we have to be reactive. We can't mitigate against everything. And there are surprises that come up every day of life. Life is a mystery that way. But if you are permanently in a reactive mode, more often than not, you are not going to make the difficult choices that maximize your future benefit, your future positive consequences. It's important that we don't remain in a reactive state for too long. We have to grieve. We have to move on. We have to come to terms with things. But if we give ourselves too much time, we get stuck. And that's not good for us. That's not good for the people around us. So it's important to understand that making decisions is an active choice. And when you're simply reacting to the consequences in your life, sometimes of not making a decision, you lose your active voice and you are no longer an active part in planning your life. You are just sort of a bit background character. You become your own chorus line and it's difficult to take that back. And that can lead to a lot of discontent. That can lead to a lot of internalized issues, anger issues. And there's a lot of comorbidity that comes along with that. So it's important that we don't sacrifice that in the term of short-term comfort. We need to be comforted every now and then. We need to have a short-term good day. Everybody needs a win. But look for longer-term wins. Ones that are substantive and last for a longer time than just a simple one-off. So really one of the things that, that I would advise is you make a lot of decisions in a day. Consider all the decisions you make and then try to reduce the amount of active decision-making you do in a day. And I know it sounds strange because I just went off of like, hey, you need to be active in making decisions. That's still true, but you can also make fewer decisions. Um, there is a study from one of your alma maters, Mr. Science Collie, Columbia, Arf. and it shows that we make roughly 70 conscious decisions a day, and that leads to decision fatigue. Um, and we get exhausted of choosing, and we either don't choose at all, or we go with the most convenient option. Now, I want to expand that into the context of feral attraction. That has an impact on our integrity. That has an impact on our, you know, everything. If we're in a relationship and we don't want to do something, like let's say our partner is kind of like, yeah, I want to have a threesome. And you're like, no, but they keep going at it. If you're coming off of a day where you have made so many decisions, it was a long day at work. You're just exhausted. You're, you're fatigued. You are decision fatigued. And your partner's like, hey, so can we talk about that threesome? You may agree, uh, agree. You may agree to things <laughs> and just to go along with it because you're tired of making decisions. Your ego depletes when you make too many decisions, and that can cause so much of an issue with integrity. So, what I do is I analyze the decisions that I make in a day. And I try to do things that minimize. Um, for example, I don't really care what I wear. I'll just grab whatever. I don't plan out outfits. I'm not a fashionable person. And people often confuse me for being homeless. Um, I get offered money and change on the train. And 
it's like, okay, I'm fine with this. Like, free money, I'll take it. But people often think that I'm a bum because <laughs> I wear essentially, you know, a fairly standardized outfit. But I don't want to take the time to be fashionable because that's time away from other decisions that I could be making. And to be quite frank, I don't care. I really don't. It's not something that I want to care about. If somebody can only be with me or be a friend with me because I wear the latest fashions, I mean, Project Runway, I am not. Project Runaway, I might be. Like, you're going to run as far away (laughs) from my fashion choices. But that's okay with me because I don't care. Some people do, though. And so what I would challenge you to do is maybe find ways to make your fashion choices a little bit easier to make. Maybe limit the choices that you have. Instead of having five pairs of sneakers in different colors, maybe have two. There are ways that you can limit your choices without limiting your ability to express yourself. So analyze the decisions that you have in your life and make important decisions early in the day. You're fresher and early in the day. And if you can front load all of your decisions, you're pretty much off to a good start. So try to do things, especially important decisions. I'm talking like the real good shit, not like, should I have Raisin Bran or Total K for breakfast? No, that, that shouldn't even be a question. Raisin Bran, crunch, get on that train. It gets the brand, you get the fiber, and you get the crunch. Some people might find that to be boring, and I agree with that. Regulating your life can be super boring to some people. I regulate my life. I try to wake up at a certain time of day. I try to eat the same things. I try to live in a routine way because that works for me. It helps me to get to sleep on time. It helps me to to keep my life running in a mechanical fashion. There's still room for improvisation, though, in that. And when you curb the amount of decisions that you make in a drastic way, oftentimes the more spontaneous decisions tend to mean more. Like if a friend's like, hey, do you want to do this? And you're like, I got nothing better to do. I got nothing else going. Yeah, let's do it. You'll find that you have a lot more fun because there's less anxiety of, oh God, I should be doing this other thing because you know what you should be doing and you know ways that you can tailor your life to make up for that time. So you end up having a less anxious existence the more regulated you become, even during moments of spontaneity or mayhem, the train stops running. Only so much you can do. So try to reduce your decisions. Try to find ways to make your life more kind of routine. And again, that might sound boring, but it makes you more productive and allows you to work more on yourself and the relationships that you have with other people. Trust me, regulation, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all. You can still be a unique, creative, spontaneous person. You just know that you want to go to bed by 10 o'clock. So two more things that I want to bring, because I, I know I'm talking a lot about decisions and it's a lot of me talking, but like this is, this is my show, damn it. This is this is one of my mo- this is an important topic <laughs> to me. And we spent 45 I don't care. Um so two things. Avoid playing the past tense what if game. So, mitigating is a valid choice when you think about the future. 
when you think about, okay, well, what if this happens? Okay, here's what I would do. Okay, we have a standard operating procedure. We're good to go. If you play the hypothetical game of, well, what if I had done this? We're spinning our wheels and getting nowhere fast. We have to live in the present. We have to live with our choices. We have to live with our consequences. And while it might be fun and exciting and a way of escapism of role-playing, well, what would have happened if I had turned left instead of turning right? We can't live in an Ashton Kutcher butterfly effect world. We have to live in the present. And we can only ever operate and make decisions from the information that we know at the time that we make the decision. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes. But we don't operate on hindsight in the present. We operate off of patterns. Have we experienced something similar in the past? Have we been with somebody who has experienced something similar in the past? What do we know about this? Let's make a decision. If it's the wrong decision, we deal with the consequences and we move on and we learn from it. Hindsight is great, but we don't have the luxury of it in the present. Jim Taylor, who's a professor, says that the bottom line of decision-making involves determining which potential decision will offer the best possible outcome based on what we know now. When we make decisions, we try to set ourselves up for success. It doesn't always work. My life is a wonderful example of that. I try to do good for me. And you know what? I get fucked all the time and not in the good way. I get fucked over every which way imaginable. It happens, right? I mean, I try to make good decisions too. And sometimes the decision looks terrible in hindsight. Yeah. Like my, my financially, my move to Seattle was actually a really bad decision in hindsight. But I didn't know that at the time. Right. And I, at the time, I made what I thought was a good decision. And, I have, and it's important to realize too that as you take in new information, the fact that a decision now looks like it would have been a bad decision you have to be fair to yourself and realize, well, you know what? You didn't have that information when you made the decision. Exactly. So try to remember not to be judgmental on, on yourself for past decisions you made that you're no longer happy with. Because at the time, you obviously thought that was a fairly good decision. And you have to be able to remain empathetic with yourself and realize, you know what? I had constrained information. I made a bad decision mm -hmm. because I didn't have access to that information. If I knew then what I know now, I would have made a different decision. But instead, I can just make a better one next time, right? I mean, obviously, this isn't like in the same league of like, if I had known that murdering this person would have landed me in jail for it. No, no, we're not talking about those kinds of decisions. We're talking about like, I mean, we'll use, we'll, we'll use your example of moving to Seattle. It's something that in hindsight, you probably wish you had not done. Well, right. And that's just because it turned out that the rental situation was more expensive than I anticipated. The job market was weaker than I anticipated mm -hmm. and was led to believe and so but those two things contributed to me having some financial hardship from moving to Seattle that I would not have had if I'd remained in New York. And so that, that in hindsight does look like a, a kind of bad decision. But at the time, I was told that the economy in, in uh, you know, Seattle was booming and it would be no problem for myself, my, my spouse at the time to get work. And that ended up being not so easy to accomplish. So, right. you know, but again, that's the kind of thing where like if I, if I judge myself really harshly, mm -hmm. Well, that would not be constructive. And it would help me make a decision the next time I'm considering whether to move across the country, right? Well, the question is, did you make the decision in good faith? Of course. Then you have to be generous to yourself. You right. made a mistake. That's kind of my point. Exactly. Yeah, right. You know, just to kind of frame it in a different way. If you're making decisions in good faith using good information, you have to treat yourself generously. 
if you're not lying to yourself or deceiving yourself. Sometimes people lie to you and you make decisions based off of their falsehoods. I'm looking at you, Colin Powell, walking us into Iraq with those weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. Where are they, David Petraeus? I don't know. Sometimes we make stupid decisions because we're lied to. If we knew that, we wouldn't make the stupid decision. But we made it because we thought we were given gener you know, genuine information. We thought we were given useful, complete information. We have to be totally generous to ourselves when we make mistakes, especially if we want to learn from them. If we just beat ourselves up, if we just pound our heads and say, I'm so stupid, I'm so stupid, I'm an idiot. We don't learn from it. We just wallow in it. We are pigs in the muck. We need to be productive. When you fuck up and you face the negative consequences, you either get bitter or you get better. We need to get better. Stop, stop dreading making important decisions. That's the crux. That is, that is the culmination of all of this. There's a philosopher by the name of Ruth Chang, and she had a TED Talk that I listened to a while back about making hard choices. And I kind of want to close this topic with that. Far from being sources of agony and dread, hard choices are precious opportunities for us to celebrate what is special about the human condition. That the reasons that govern our choices are as correct or incorrect sometimes run out. And it is here in the space of hard choices that we have the power to create reasons for ourselves to become the distinctive people that we are. We are colored by the choices that we make. We become the unique us that is us from the decisions and the choices that we make. It is what defines us. And we should celebrate them. We shouldn't fear them. We shouldn't be afraid of them. We should welcome them as opportunities to grow, to explore ourselves as individuals, and to really just culminate what the human experience is. Making choices, getting messy, making mistakes, getting into it, getting out of it, learning, repeat, rinse, Wash, learn, grow, live. The human condition centers around all of this. A lot of what I've spoken about on the show for the past two years is about knowing yourself. And this is the final frontier of knowing who you are. Because you're dealing with the unknown. If you know who you are and what you want and what you're looking for in life, there is no reason to dread decisions. Because even if it's the wrong decision, even if there are negative consequences after negative consequences, and it is a pain and a half to revert, you're still you despite all that. It's the final frontier. We're going to end the show there. Next week, we have a topic. We're not going to tell you what it is because, um, well, we're still kind of debating it. <laughs> we'll get there, though. We'll get there. Um, it's We wanted to focus more on our 100th episode, even though we recorded it twice. 
we wanted to make sure that there's a lot of information in the show. And please do check out the show notes for it if you're interested in the TED Talk or you want to see where the quotes that I sourced from are from. Uh, both of the professors that I sourced from are psychologists that focus specifically in the art of decision making and why we as humans kind of suck at decision making and what we can do better about it. You can find our show notes in the information posted alongside every episode or on our website, feralattraction.com. On our website, you can find other information such as our contact page, which has ways to get into touch with us. I would recommend using our contact form in order to reach out to us. When I leave the show, if you ask me a question that's more for the show, I will forward it on. You may not get as many personalized responses from me because while I will be, um, what, 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 what will we call me, Vero? I'm not like disgraced. You're still a co-founder you're still, and you're a host emeritus, co-founder and host emeritus. There you go. So while I will still have fancy titles that have words in Latin, uh, <laughs> I think that's Latin. Um, it is. Yes, I think so. I won't be an active voice. And so I would recommend you use our contact page and the form on it or the emails that are listed there to get in touch. Questions at feralattraction.com or just use the anonymous contact form. Hit us up on Twitter or Telegram. Everything's there. But if you reach out to me, I'll probably just forward it on. No offense, but it's a personal journey for me. And I've dedicated two years of my life I'm going to take a vacation. You'll also find information on how to help support our show. Now, when we started the show, and even now, the show is self-sustaining. I will fund the show out of pocket if I need to in order to keep it going. <laughs> even if I am not involved with it. If I am host emeritus, extraordinaire, summa cum laude, I don't know. <laughs> but we do have a Patreon. And if you're not fond of throwing money at podcasts, which I can understand money's tight, if you listen to our show, leave a rating and a review for us on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store, wherever you listen to our show, or retweet our content, or follow us on Facebook, or tell your friends, make your mother-in-law listen to our kinky episodes so she becomes less crazy towards you when you talk about your same-sex relationship. I think that's what the the, uh, the door in the face technique you, you show her the really horrible stuff. Hey, look, at least I'm not into that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh, let's talk about sounding. Mm. Um, but if you are so inclined to help support us financially, that does go towards us having more additional resources for research on the show, for Vero to be able to do more traveling, to host more panels, to host more parties, to generally just be a more sociable calling. Arf. On our Patreon, we have different tiers, um, one of which allows for shoutouts at the end of every episode. Um, some of our patrons of that tier include Miss Hyde. Miss Hyde participated in a streak for tigers around the London Zoo last year in August. If you'd like to support her, even now, because this fundraiser continues, because it is an important one, it is to help protect the natural habitat of tigers in the wild. Visit her just giving page, justgiving.com slash fundraising slash anaconda. It's like anaconda with a H in front of it. Or you can visit her Twitter at anaconda sparks. 
a really great cause. I mean, she ran around the London Zoo naked, painted up like a tiger. That was pretty cool. And if you donate, I think you get to see some pictures of that in action. And that's pretty heckin' cool, too. If you're more interested in, like, graphic art, artistry, comics, muscles, TF, Snares is the artist that you should check out. He has a Patreon of his own, patreon.com slash snares, and you can subscribe for just a dollar every month to get updates on comic projects. It's also a one-stop site for commission and other artist information. If you, again, if you're into like muscle growth, hyper, anything like macro, you'll probably really dig Snares' work. It's very colorful, very lively, and it has a great message. Sir Paulus is an author, and if you like the literary work, and all too often the written side of the fandom goes unnoticed and underloved. Sir Paulus wrote a book, uh, it was published with the Thurston Hall Press, titled The Pride of Parahumans, and you can check it out on Amazon. And if you're a fan of sci-fi, high-tech, furries, and space, you would probably really dig his other works. You can find out more information on his Patreon, patreon.com slash or maybe you're looking for a new friend on the Twitters. Maybe you're looking for a new YouTube to follow that discusses geeky video game fandom related stuff. Myron the Fluffy is there for you. Follow Myron on Twitter at Myron the Fluffy. And you can also follow his YouTube account, which again details amazing information about the fandom, about video games. It's a lot of fun. And you can find all that information on his Twitter account, which if you follow, Chances are he'll follow you back because he's a good guy and has a lot of wonderful updates and also random pictures. He's a great guy and you should definitely check him out. We're going to end the episode there. There, We've gone an hour, 40 minutes. We're done here. We're tired. We've recorded this twice. Hero <laughs> is looking daggers at me. He's like, end it now. End it now. My suffering. And I'm like, your suffering knows no end. Arr- We'll be back next week, though. And until then, I'm Metrico. And I'm Vero the Science Collie. Be well.